0: To Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Last week we looked at the first part and we saw that Jesus coming to the earth was the good news that was proclaimed, but ultimately Jesus himself is the good news. This week we're going to look at at the kingship and the reign and the kingdom of Christ. So, Jesus is the good news, but He's also the King. So we we'll read Colossians chapter one, verses nine through eighteen, and then as we go through, it, we're actually going to work backwards through the passage. Uh, it's sort of the passage that's presented is from man to God. We're going to kind of rearrange and look at it from God to man, and then I think when you understand that, you can go back through it in the regular order. So Colossians chapter one, verse nine, Paul says, for this reason we also, and the reason being uh, the love he had heard uh, from the Colossians, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthen with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the of, the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, one of the most powerful passages in the Bible, this one and one following it, because it it sort of presents Jesus in one of the most descriptive ways possible in human language, sort of who Jesus is at a divine, universal scale. When we come to the Christmas season, it's important to remember this is not an American holiday. This is not a Western tradition. This is not something this church does. This is an ancient tradition that has been celebrated for 2,000 years. And so in the sermon, I intentionally took quotes, and I believe all of them are at least 1,000 years old. Most of them almost 2,000 years old. And they talk a little bit different, so they're not quite as smooth as maybe a Tim Keller quote or a C.S. Lewis. But you'll see when we quote these people from 2,000 years ago, they're saying the exact same thing we're saying. We are not unique. We are part of an ancient tradition that has been doing the same thing every year for thousands of years. Now, the question is, is it worth doing? If it's been, is it just because we've been doing it that long? What we're going to see in this passage is, it's an ancient tradition because it's worth keeping. And so as we connect ourselves with the past, we see that there's nothing that could have been better than what's presented here. And so the reason we, we celebrate it every year is because there's nothing better Practically, so we're going to see the big picture, the universal picture, but practically what's taught in this passage shows us how to deal with the chaos that we see in our lives and around us. How do you, humans need to make sense of things. We have to make sense of things. Words like senseless are evil. We always look for a reason. We always look for stories a motivation, background. there's always got to be something. And so the chaos, we inherently hate chaos, but we live in a world of chaos. And so what this passage is going to do is going to give us a different picture, a contrasting picture, which will help us deal with the things we can't explain. No human can give you all the answers. So how do you deal with the things you can't explain? That's what this passage talks about. So we look at three things, the king, the kingdom, and the kingdom life. It's Pretty simple, isn't it? I wish it was that easy every week. The king, the kingdom, and the kingdom life. So look at the end of this passage. We're going to look at the king first, verses 15 through 18. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So Christianity worships Jesus, and that's what this passage sort of starts with, our behavior and moves to him. If we don't know who Jesus is or have a, a shallow understanding of him, we can't follow him. We won't want to. So by looking at Christ, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time here, when we can see who Christ is, the rest of it follows. Yeah. Once you see who Jesus is and you believe it, Amen. then you're like, oh, okay, let's move on from here because now it makes sense. So the king, in earth, on earth, when we have a kingdom, it's usually defined by territory, right. by military power. And the king is powerful, but kings come and go. Kingdoms stay. But in the Bible, it's the opposite. It's the king that defines the kingdom. It's not the territory. It's not the place. It's not the military might. It's the king himself. So we understand a Christian point of view. When we talk about the king. That is the kingdom, in a sense. What the king does creates the kingdom in a way that no human can. And so we see that, that Jesus is the king. And this passage talks about, particularly from a point of view of him being over everything else. Sometimes we see passages about Jesus being sort of the shepherd or the counselor or the friend. Here we see him as the king. Because in this world, we need to know who's at the top. Who's in charge? Who makes the decisions? Who do we look to when we need help? Who's going to come through? Who's going to make things work? Who do we have to listen to? So here it says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, these verses have been twisted a lot to create heresies for, for a couple thousand years now. So what does it mean when it says he's the image of the invisible God? Does it mean he's not God? Like a Jehovah Witness would say, or a Mormon? He's the image of God. He's not God. No. It's trying to describe something that's beyond human description. It's trying to say here in human language is eternity. Describe eternity in limited words. You can't. So what the Bible does here is it uses a lot of different phrases, and when you put them all together, you get a better idea of the picture. So the first one here, the image of the invisible God, is similar to the word we see in John 1, in the beginning was the word. It's the Greek word logos. Sometimes it's better just to say logos because no translation really kind of grasps, kind of comprehends the meaning. So when he says here he's the image of the invisible God, you probably didn't know it, but this Paul didn't come up with this word. This is actually used prior to Paul, prior to Jesus, in philosophy of that time. So have you ever heard of Alexandria, Egypt? There was a tradition there by a guy named Philo, who was very famous. He represented the Jews there. And he created a philosophy around the word, the Lagos. So when John shows up and when Paul shows up, they took that language because it expressed a little bit of truth and they said, here's what he was really talking about. Here's the language he was saying. So when when Paul says the image, he was drawing from philosophy where they use the same language of image and they use it synonymously with word. In the beginning was the word. They would talk about the image too. And what does the image mean? Don't you wish you could see the big picture? Or do you ever afraid that there is no big picture? That everything is kind of random and it just happens as we make decisions, sort of creating the big picture as we go along? Well, the word here image and the logos that it refers to is a philosophical concept of an archetype. Now, if you're an engineer here, you know about prototypes. I don't know anything about prototypes, but so if I mess up in the engineering side, you could correct me later. But there's the idea that there's a pattern, and you make things based on the pattern. So, philosophy calls it an archetype. If you're into literature, you have the archetypes, uh, sort of the patterns that other things follow, prototypes, patterns. If you make clothes, you sort of have the patterns you, you model things after. So when he says the image here, he's telling people like engineers and philosophers, there's something that other things are patterned after. It, didn't just, it wasn't just thought up on the moment. There's a big picture that can't be destroyed with the little things. And Jesus is the image, the pattern, the word of that archetype. Now, we'll go into more about who Jesus is, but that's one thing that the Bible tells us about Jesus, is he's the order the logos, the story, the prototype, the archetype that we can see. And so we wonder, is there a big picture? Does, is there any way to make sense of this world? In our view, no, you will never make sense of this world. But when Jesus was born on this earth, God is saying he can make sense of it. He is the sense of it. So if you trust him, you know, you've got the big picture. And you're never going to see the big picture. And you're going to go through life with a bunch of questions that will never be answered. But because you know Jesus, you know you have the answer, the person. So he's the image. He represents the archetype. Basil, who lived in 350 AD, said, Not because the image differs from the archetype, according to the definition of indivisibility and goodness, but that it may be shown that it is the same as the prototype, even though it be different. He, therefore, that has perception of the beauty of the image is made perceptive of the archetype. If you can see Jesus, you can see God. No man has seen God. Well, how do we know he's real? How do we know he's running things? How do we know he's making sense of this world? Because Jesus. Jesus is the visible image of God so that you can say, I've got proof that God exists. That there's a big picture. If we can see Jesus, we can see God. But there's something else too. In the Old Testament, there's talk of a firstborn, someone who's going to show up and be in charge and make sense of this world. Not because the world makes sense, but because he's going to make sense of it. So he says here, he's the image of the, in, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Again, cults, and heretics say, well, he's the firstborn, he's created. He's the first created. But if he's created, that's not good enough. That means he's just a part of the world that we live in. He's part of the chaos. So what does it mean when he says firstborn? Well, it goes back to the Old Testament. In Psalm 89, they pro- uh, David says, but my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. He's talking as if he were God. And in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also, I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. Remember how the sea kind of emphasized chaos? So now there's a king who's putting his hand over these sort of uncontrollable things, rivers and oceans. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn. Make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I'll make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. There was a promise of someone who would show up and never change and control things that do change. A point of reference, an anchor says the rock of my salvation, something that doesn't move when everything else is moving. You look at your life and you say, I can't make sense of it. You need somebody that will not change when your life changes. That's who this firstborn was. Now, why was he the firstborn? Because the firstborn got all the privileges. They got the rights. When the firstborn showed up, everyone had to listen to him. So when Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation, he's saying he has the rights over all creation. He's not just the creator. He has the right to tell people what to do. That's sort of like, let Jesus be your Lord. He has the right to be your Lord. You can accept him or reject him, but he still has the right. So firstborn here does not mean first created. That's a different word. It's a prophecy that's being fulfilled of someone who should be in charge. Have you ever seen anybody who shouldn't be in charge? I don't need to get political. I'll let let your imagination do the politics. If you've lived more than a few years, you've seen plenty of people who should not be in charge. They either don't have the right or the ability. What the Bible is giving us is someone who has both the right and the ability to be in charge. They should be in charge. We don't like authority, do we? But really, we don't like authority because it messes up all the time. What we have here is a perfect king, a perfect firstborn of the perfect father, who has come down to say, here's what kingship should look like. Here's what the president should look like. Here's what the king, the prime minister, whatever your head of state is, here's what they should look like. They don't change. They create order. They're not chaotic. They live by justice and mercy. And that's who Jesus is. He represents the big picture, but then he comes down to this earth to set it right. You can't worship God in private. God came down to the earth publicly to set the whole world right. And as Christians, when we live after the king, we live a public faith. It's a personal faith, but it's public. God has claimed this world, and we are his kingdom. We follow that king, and he sets things in order. But if it weren't just because of his nature, so by nature he should be king, look at what he did. It also clears up whether he was created. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. You cannot be a Jehovah witness and believe this verse. You cannot be a Mormon and believe this verse. You cannot be a Muslim and believe this verse. Because this verse says that before everything was created, Jesus was there. And then things were created. Whether invisible or visible, heaven or earth, he says, all things were created through him and for him. All things. So if Jesus were created himself, who created him? Because here it says that he created all things. We believe that Jesus is king because he created everything that we see. Everything that he would be king over. He's before it. He created it. Philo says, this is before the Bible, New Testament was written, for God, being God, judged in advance that a beautiful copy of would never be produced except from a beautiful pattern. You see beauty in this world? It had to come from something more beautiful. It had to come from a pattern that was more beautiful than the product. And so God says, if I want to create a beautiful world, if I want to create beautiful people, if I want to create a beautiful society, I have to have something before that that is beautiful. That's who Jesus is. He's the beautiful pattern who creates after himself. Do you know why you like family? Do you know why you like good food? Do you know why you like logic and reason and engineering? Because Jesus loves those things. Because Jesus is those things. Yeah. He is called the logos, the logic, the things that make sense. So when he creates, he creates things that make sense. And we as his creatures say we love those things. We love it when things work because we look to the creator, and that's Jesus. And so he's king because he's eternal. He's preexistent. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. We worship a king who's always been there. He didn't become king. He didn't become the son of God. He didn't become perfect. He has always been perfect. He transcends everything in our life in a way that nothing else that we can hold to does. You see, when we worship a king, it's not good enough for him to be a good person. He needs to transcend everything that could be bad. You see, when God created the world, it was perfect, but then it corrupted itself. We don't want a king made like that, who was created good, but then could be corrupted. So what Jesus says is here, he goes, I'm above corruption, I'm before it. I can't be corrupted. I'm the king because I'm perfect. Amen. But he's also the king because he does what kings do. They rule. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That's it. Paul's drawn from philosophy here, from uh, Greek philosophy. You've heard the Stoics. There's a way the world works. Planets rotate. Gravity pulls things down. Objects react certain ways. They just work. You hit your hand with a uh, hammer, what happens? The same thing every time. And we live our lives based on these things. If I leave my house at this time, I'll get somewhere else at this time. And if traffic's there, this'll... we live our lives based on the idea that things are going to be the same, that you can repeat things. That's what patterns are. That's what science is. But what makes things the same tomorrow as they are today? Who's in charge of making the planet spin the same way? Who's in charge of making gravity work? Who's in charge of logic? Is it impersonal? No, we understand that the person is the highest form in creation. Logic is based on people. And so what the Bible says here is that he is king because he rules in him. All things consist. We have too narrow a view of Christianity. Our Christianity only works with sort of Bible things, like who we pray to. Like that's Christianity is who we pray to and what morality is. This is saying everything is related to Christianity. You cannot get a job that doesn't need Jesus to make it work. You cannot do anything that doesn't need Jesus to make it work. Do you realize the claims of this king? He's saying when an atheist writes a book denying God, that Jesus allowed him to do that, that that it enabled him to do that, that made sure it was able to happen. The atheist is being helped by God to create his book. Because if God removed himself, if Jesus took his hands off, it would cease to exist. So we see the mercy of God, but the power of God. You just have to believe this. There's no way to prove it. Because the things that you would use to prove it are controlled by God himself. He's the starting point, and we're always going to follow that. So the Bible tells us that Jesus is the king because Jesus controls everything. And since he controls everything, and since he created everything, and since he's at the top of everything, and since he's God, everything points to him. Now, there's another Greek word here. I I tried to translate it, but I couldn't. It's a Greek word, telos, and it doesn't really have an English word to translate it. It's something like goal, end, point. It's it's the thing you're moving towards. It's the result of you know, when when you're building something, you have something in, in your mind. That's what this word means. So creation has something it's headed towards, it's aimed at. What is that? Here it says, it's Jesus. Jesus is the point. It's the goal. It's the end of creation. Look here in verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. That's why atheism, agnosticism, other religions are so bad is because they're taking God's creation and turning it away from God. Jesus says, here's what I've made for you. And they say, thanks. And they turn their back to God. This is saying that you get it from God so that you can give it back to God. That's Christianity, taking his creation to give it back to him. Lightfoot says, this is about 200 years ago, the eternal word is the goal of the universe. Jesus is the goal of the universe as he was the starting point. It must end in unity as it proceeded from unity. And And the center of this unity is Christ. This expression has no parallel and could have none in philosophy. You can't understand the world if you don't know Jesus Christ himself. See, we don't make claims of living alongside of people for eternity. We make the claim that without Christ, you cannot understand the world. Uh, Stephen Hawkins tried to create the theory of everything. Oh, yeah. This is it. It doesn't need to be discovered, it was revealed to us. When Jesus came to this earth, he revealed the theory of everything, which is himself. So much more profound than a logical sequence or a mathematical formula. It came from unity, it proceeds to unity. So of course he's the head of creation, he created it. Of course he's the point, but look what it says further. Because we understand that creation has rejected God, so God did something more in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Christmas is about man messing up creation, so God coming down to recreate it. That's what Christmas is. He goes, you messed up the first one, so I'm going to show up to fix it created it the first time. I'm going to fix it the second time. So the advent of Jesus is the arrival to fix creation. That's called the church. Christ created the church. He says here he's the firstborn of the dead. Where did the church come from? It came from Jesus dying on the cross, being buried and being risen. Now he's in charge of death. Now he rules over everything and he creates the church. So the church has this unique place above creation. It's the recreation. It's the new creation. And since it was Jesus that created the church, who should be in charge of it? Who should be listened to? Who should, be point, who should the church be aimed at pleasing? Jesus Christ himself. So he's the first one of the dead. That in all things, he may have the preeminence. God's grace says, you should have worshipped me because of who I am. I'm going to make it easy for you. Now you can worship me for what I did for you. He came and says, you won't worship me for who I am, so I'll show my power on your behalf So you'll worship me that way. Jesus said, if you don't believe the words, believe the miracles. If it's too hard to comprehend how Jesus created the world and holds it all together, just think of what he did on the cross and the resurrection and worship him for that. And so our church is ruled by Christ through the word. It's not ruled by the pastor. It's not ruled by the bishop. It's ruled by the word. That's why everybody has a part in it. You see, the kingship of Christ produces congregational government. You thought congregational government is just like a practical way of like, you know, voting on stuff. No, it's a way to make sure that Jesus is at the head and not a person, not just a human. And it's by virtue of his work. You see the kind of king we worship? If you can get the kind of king we worship, the rest of the Bible is easy. When you can see who he is and what he did, then it's like, okay, everything else is easy. You know why we struggle with homosexuality and transgender and abortion, all those other things, and society's fighting over them? It's not because of that issue. It's because of who Jesus is. See, if you don't love Jesus, it doesn't matter your stand on those things. If you don't acknowledge Jesus as king, your view of homosexuality doesn't matter. You can't reject the creator and then pretend to keep his creation. So, so many times we, we have these tests of faith. What's your view on this? But until it's Jesus at the head, it doesn't matter your view on this. It's Jesus first, then his commands. It's the king first, then the kingdom. So let's look at what he says about the kingdom. Start in verse 12. You see, that's the king, but what's it look like? What does he produce? Philo said, before Jesus was born... I'm, he asks this question, I'm composed of body and soul. I seem to have mind, reason, sense, yet I find none of them on my own. For where was my body prior to my birth? And whither will it go when I have departed? Where's the newborn babe, the child, the boy, the man? Whence came the soul and whither will it go? When did we acquire it? Prior to our birth? But we were not then in existence. What of it after death? Philo's asking questions that he can't answer. Big questions. Who am I? What happened to those people before me? What happens to the people after me? Where do my parents go? Where do my kids go? What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be dead? If Jesus is king, what does that look like for me? What does that mean for my life? That's the kingdom. In verse 12, it says, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. And conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. The Bible's putting a contrast here. He says there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And you're either in one or the other. It's the most basic divide in this world. Whose power are you under? Not are you under power. Not are you being ruled. But who is ruling you? Which kingdom do you live in? There's no neutral territory. Kingdom of light. Kingdom of darkness, kingdom of order, kingdom of chaos, kingdom of tyranny, kingdom of love. You're in one or the other. What he's saying here is there's two kingdoms. You're either in one or the other, but look at the kinds of kingdoms they are. See, you may be in church. You may be in the service, but not in God's kingdom. You can sit and look like you're in the kingdom, and not be. You could have been attending with kingdom citizens for a long time, but be in the wrong kingdom. You see, the kingdom of darkness is all about deception, concealment, chaos, covering up. So it makes sense for kingdom, for people who live in the kingdom of darkness to pretend like they're not in it, to cover themselves in darkness, to never be able to figure out what's going on. People are like, I don't really know that person can't really see what they're about. That's Satan's kingdom. Kingdom of darkness. Kingdom of chaos. The kingdom that produces school shooters. You see, why do we call it senseless violence? Because that's the highest, that's the worst form of violence. Violence we can't make sense of. Like why? When a school shooting happens and this is the world we live in, if your kids are born before like after 2000, they grew up in a world where school shootings are normal. They need to know how to make sense of chaos. That's why the news can't stop talking about it, because people are like, "We need to know why it happened. What was his was his family? Was it drugs? Was it what is it that caused this? And what's the answer? Always, we don't know why it happened. The Bible's telling us. Sometimes the reason is chaos. Sometimes the reason is darkness. It's just." it's pulling apart at reality. And so when a school shooter gets so frustrated with the world, so into the kingdom of chaos that he can't live there, he seeks to destroy others. He seeks to undo the world. And the best way he can do that is to get a gun and kill people he knows. There is no sense in it. It's the opposite. He's trying to create more chaos because he can't handle it. Now, until we realize that the Bible has told us the answer to these things, we will not be able to live with it. We won't be able to grasp the reality of chaos in our lives, on the news, all around us. The chaos can't be made sense of. You can't make order out of nothing. So what the Bible says here is there's another kingdom, the kingdom of light. It's a transfer from chaos to order. It's not a remaking of the kingdom of darkness. It's a transfer. Lightfoot said, Jesus is the principle of cohesion in the universe. He impresses upon creation that unity and solidarity, which makes it a cosmos instead of a chaos. No Jesus, chaos. So Jesus, order. The kingdom that we live in is either coming apart or coming together. You're either being pulled apart by chaos or being put together by Jesus. Your world from the inside out is either coming apart or coming together. Now, which kingdom do you want to be in? See, if you still live in the kingdom of darkness, you may be getting by, but it's only a matter of time. And if you live in the kingdom of light, don't you want to realize the privilege you have? This is what the Bible gives us. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. You see, the the kingdom of light has no darkness in it, it has no chaos, it has no deception, it's all good. So who gets to be a part of that kingdom? People who are full of light, full of good, with no chaos, with no conflicting uh, moralities or opinions, who are always good to other people, who are always doing the right thing, who never lie or maybe just withhold truth. It's all light, it's all open. Everything's great, which immediately rules out every single one of us. We don't get to be in the kingdom of light because we are not of light. So what has to happen? You don't get to walk up to the border of the kingdom of light and say, I'd like to come in, let me go through the process. We're all disbarred from it. So what does Jesus have to do? God says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. You are not qualified for this kingdom. You are only qualified for chaos, darkness, destruction. But God says, I'll qualify for you. You don't have to be qualified. Thanks be to God who qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. You see, you don't have to be in the light. You just have to be qualified to be in the light by God himself. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. We didn't deliver ourselves. We didn't see the light and say, oh, I don't want this anymore. He delivered us from the power and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, in whom his son, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You notice how we're not a part of any of the actions here. These are actions of a prisoner being released. The word conveyed there is a Greek word that talks about colonists who are transported and placed into something. God showed up on the shores of the kingdom of darkness and said, get on this boat and I'll take you to somewhere else. I'll change you. I'll pay for your sins. I'll pay the ransom. Why do we follow Christ? There's no downside. He is perfect and he makes us perfect. He qualifies us into his kingdom, transferred by his blood. Justin Martyr, who wrote 2,000 years ago, says, he became man by the virgin in order that the disobedience which proceeded from the serpent might receive its destruction in the same manner in which it derived its origin. He said, man created sin, so I became a man. So the same way that sin came into the world, sin would be destroyed. Mankind did not get rid of sin. Christ the man did. So you're either in Christ's kingdom or you're not. There is no kingdom without Christ. And there's no being in the kingdom without Christ. So when we talk about salvation by grace, it means saying to God, I'm in darkness. Change me. Pick me up. Put me in the light. Take everything, pay for it. I can't do anything. So when you're in the kingdom of light and your sins are forgiven, what's your attitude? I didn't get here on my own works. I'm not going to stay here by my own works. I was transformed. I'll stay transformed. I was conveyed. I'll stay here because of God's will. So works can't get you into the kingdom and they can't keep you in the kingdom. You're qualified by God and you're kept qualified by God. That means you want to live a different life. So this is the part of the sermon where if you're not a Christian, just wait to the end and we can talk later. Because right now, if you don't believe in Jesus, you cannot do the rest of this. Because the rest of this talks about how you live. And it's all about wanting something. But if you live in darkness, you need God to change your heart. And until he does that, you've got no hope for a good life. And certainly no hope to be in the kingdom. So for the rest of us who have trusted Christ, He says, here's how you'll live. Look in verse nine. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be. And then he says a couple things. He says, for those of you who are in the kingdom of light, here's how it looks to live there. We talk about this in Sunday school. If you love Jesus, you're going to say, okay, what's next? What's he want from me? I know I can't earn anything, but I'd like to do something. What's it look like to live in this kingdom? Here's the first thing, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Do you know why we hand out so many books? You know why we read books and I'm always talking about it and we talk about Greek words and we go with philosophy? Because knowledge is God given. He says, be filled with all knowledge in all parts of your life, your will, your emotions, your faith, everything. Knowledge is key. We don't have a faith where we're just like, I don't know what I believe. Just I just believe it. We have a a faith full of knowledge. If you are academically minded, that's a gift. If you can read, that's a gift. So that you can acquire knowledge. That a kingdom with citizens who love to learn. Now you may have had barriers put in front of you to learning. But the goal of the church is to help you learn. That's what kingdom citizens do. You live in the kingdom of light, you want to learn. You want to receive more light. We, that may, he prays, it may be fill with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You ever learn Bible facts and you're like, I know what it says, I don't know what it means. It's not just enough to know things. You have to understand them. You have to know what it means in your life. It's like, okay, I know Jesus is king, but now what? So Paul is praying that you would learn the facts, learn the truth, and have the wisdom to put it into your life. Because without that, it's just head knowledge. It's just useless facts until you can put it into practice. Kingdom citizens seek to take the truth and put it into their life. It says all spiritual understanding. That takes a long time that's not a three week course. That's not a four year degree. That's a lifetime of learning. That's a lifetime of week after week, day after day of acquiring knowledge. But you see, it's not just learning, it's living. Look at verse 10 that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Do you just acquire knowledge or do you actually put it into practice? Are you walking? Are you producing fruit? fully pleasing him being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God citizens who live in the kingdom look different they act different they didn't get there because they acted different but once they got there they acted different you see see how that works if you look the same as you did 10 years ago are you in the kingdom if the people in your life cannot see a change in your life are you in the kingdom Because knowledge produces fruit. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We're motivated by love for Christ to please Him and we're empowered by the Spirit. How do you change? You can't. The Spirit changes you. So if you don't change, you don't have the Spirit. That's a huge implication for our church. When you look around at members and they don't change... For years, you need to ask yourself, do they have the Spirit? And if you feel you're necessary to hide yourself from the church, why? Why do you hide yourself? Are you afraid that you won't be able to stand up to the biblical standard? That you have no fruit? That you have no work of the Spirit? The Bible says the results of living in the kingdom are a life change. Yes, we're saved by grace. Yes, it's come just as you are. But if you stay just as you are for the rest of, the, of your life, what's the difference? So often we get caught up with the gospel in a way that only changes our status and never our behavior. He says that you may walk worthy, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering. Do You want God's power? Do You ever wonder what that looks like? Like you pray and you're like, God, do something in my life. And then nothing happens. Look what this verse says. We're strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. The the entire glory of God is shed into our life. And what does that look like? What does it look like to have all of God's power poured into your life? Patience and long-suffering. What does it look like to be in the kingdom? You're just there. And you never leave. You just stay with it. It's not you do miracles and you build great things. It's you never quit. You never quit. Tons of bad things come into your life and there's chaos everywhere, but you just keep going. And nothing changes that. You see, the power of God, we want it to look dramatic and radical, but it doesn't. It just means you never give up. You never quit. It says all patience and long-suffering with joy. How do you stay happy as a Christian? The power of God in your life. You may never do anything great your entire life except not quit. You see how Christ both raises and lowers the bar? He both raises it and says, follow me, the king of glory. But he lowers and says, just don't quit. That's it. Just keep showing up. Keep going. That's what kingdom citizens do. It's like the deep sea fish. You take a deep sea fish out of the deep, and what happens to it? It it crumbles. It, It comes apart. How does it survive the pressure under the sea? There's pressure inside of it that pushes back against the ocean. You know how much pressure is in the bottom of the ocean? How many thousands of pounds pressing down that fragile fish? But there's something inside of it that's more... So it is with a Christian. All the chaos of this world is pressing on you. But God says, I will fill you with my power so that the world may not see it, but you'll know I keep going. It doesn't stop me. That's what the gospel does. That's what kingdom life looks like. It means never quitting. I read a letter. that was written about 130 AD, about 1900 years ago that I think sums up this whole passage. For this was no mere earthly invention which was delivered to them, nor is a mere human system of opinion, but truly God himself, who is almighty, the creator of all things and the invisible, has sent from heaven and placed among men him who is the truth and the holy and incomprehensible word and has firmly established him in their hearts. He did not, as one might have imagined, Sent to men any servant or angel or ruler, but the very creator and fashioner of all things, by whom he made the heavens, by whom he enclosed the sea within its proper bounds, whose ordinances all the stars faithfully observe, by whom all things have been arranged and placed within their proper limits, and to whom all are subject, fire, air, and the abyss, the things which are in the heights and the things which are below. This messenger he sent to them. Was it then, as one might conceive, for the purpose of exercising tyranny or of inspiring fear and terror? By no means, but under the influence of meekness. As a king sends his son, who is also a king, so sent he him. As God he sent him. As to men he sent him. As a savior he sent him. And as seeking to persuade, not to coerce us. For coercion has no place in the character of God. As loving us, He sent him. Do you worship that king? If you do, you are in the kingdom of God and you will stay there by the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son as a gift that he was born in a manger, that he was lived a holy life, that he was crucified under Pilate, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he reigns over our hearts. I pray that we would live in accordance with that and that we would spread the word of his kingdom, especially spread the word of the king. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.